Hey, Harpy Hour fans. We're running a very special promotion for all of our loyal listeners. It's a merch giveaway, specifically our logo stickers, because, well, it's the only merch we have right now. But there's a catch. We're not just giving them away. You have to earn them. To get a sticker, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any of your preferred streaming platforms. So send us a screenshot or a picture proof that you've done both of those things. So again, that's subscribing to the show and leaving a review. You can send it to any of our social media accounts at Harpy Hour Pod, or you can email it to harpyhourpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, also give us your address so we can mail you the sticker. You'll also get a shout out on social media and in an episode of the show for our thanks. And don't worry if you can only do one of those two things for whatever reason, I don't know why, do both. You'll still get a shout out, but no sticker. So make the effort. Do better. This promo is only going to last until we've given away our first 20 stickers or if this whole thing crashes and burns, whatever happens first. So hurry up, run, don't walk and get your sticker now. Also, don't forget to tell your friends because, you know, what's cooler than having matching stickers on your water bottle or a laptop? Nothing. Nothing. There's literally nothing cooler than that. Nope. So... Tell your friends, you can each get stickers, show off your friendship, and share your Harpy love. And remember, if you want to see even more Harpy Hour merch coming up, support us on Patreon. These funds will help us improve the show and grow our brand. Now, before you enjoy the episode, check out this promo for another awesome podcast to add to your list. And stick around for Harpy Hour! Hi, I'm Kim. And I'm Jennifer. We're the hosts of the podcast Inebriated Input. Every other week, we get drunk and answer your questions. Whether it's how to handle a breakup or your latest roommate drama or just what you should buy if you're getting a cat, we're here for you. While drinking. A lot. And being generally charming and funny. Inebriated Input is available on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or basically anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And you can find more info at inebriatedinput.com. Cheers! Harpy Hour may contain explicit language, as well as graphic, violence, and sexual content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Harpy Hour, Harpy Hour, Harpy Hour. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Thank you. I wasn't anticipating <laughs> that. And I was really on board. I really thought you were echoing. I thought you were singing. <laughs> Who knew? It's very authentic. Very we're the harpies, harpies, harpies. <laughs> I'm Tracy, Tracy, Tracy. I'm Liz. Oh, okay. We're done with that. I'm Steph, Steph. <laughs> and this is our podcast, 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 where we oh share God, ridiculous stories in history, science, and entertainment. And we promise we won't echo forever. Okay, instead of there being a lag that I have to deal with, there's going to be an echo I have to deal with when I record this shit together. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Steph will fix it in post. Don't worry about it, guys. Oh, fuck all of you. <laughs> it's an intentional echo, so it's special. It's a special one. 
We're always special. It's fine. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Why is our episode called Can I Get an Encore? Because it rhymes with 24. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Amazing. No further explanation needed. You haven't noticed. I, I try to like make them rhyme or theme or something when I do them. Yeah. So episode 24, can I get an encore? For our listeners, we always have to put a title in the cast session that we use. And we don't have our actual record. episode titles yet, obviously. Right, because those come from the recording. So whenever... <laughs> Whenever we do that, we try to put something fun up there. And apparently Liz just decided to go with rhyming. Just rhyming in general. I liked 22 because that was a Taylor Swift Swift one. But for Mm, 19, it was just yay quarantine. Yeah. (laughs) I don't remember what I did for the other. I didn't catch the rhyming that time. That was a buzzkill a bit. (laughs) All right. Tracy. Yeah. What are you gracing us with today? Today. I am going to be telling you about keeping an eye on the FBI. Mm. Yeah, I know. It's very like, it's not a Tracy segment. It's like you got, it's a segment similar to the ones you guys do. I was feeling very like rage against the power when I was writing these notes. So our next two episodes are going to be a little ragey and a little history based and they're going to be about times when the power lied to us and we uh, had to revolt as Americans. So when has that ever happened? I know. I don't know why you feel that way right now in particular. I times know. are great. I, I, Nothing's wrong. You know, I was just, I was getting drunk and felt frisky, guys. <laughs> That's about it. Is your segment going to start with Merriam-Webster defines the FBI as... It's, it's not. Maybe Mary Webster defines rage as. It's not a Tracy segment. <laughs> I mean, it probably should. In w- in one of my segments that I wrote this week, it says at the top, like, note, this segment is going to be ragey. You've been warned, and I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. We we like rage here. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's fine. So, Liz. Yeah. What you doing today? I'm going to talk about the Carnival Corpse. Ooh, that sounds festive and freaky. <laughs> that sounds festive. terrifying. Carnival <laughs> Corpse? Who died at the carnival? I mean, that's not shocking to me. I've been to carnivals. <laughs> they are death traps. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that people have died there. Well, this sounds like one particular corpse. The amount of, like screws that are left over every time they assemble a ferris wheel (laughs) (laughs) guys i hate ferris wheels i hate them i read a book when i was little about this girl who fell off the ferris wheel and her hair got stuck in the (gasps) wheel and i've never been able to ride a ferris wheel those are my worst nightmares did she get scalped yeah she got like fucking scalped you guys It was terrifying, and I haven't been able to ride a Ferris wheel since. I get very sweaty palms. <laughs> it's really upsetting. Okay. I hope that's not what we're talking about. This, well, this will fun. have a fun twist for you. Okay. okay. Well, Steph, are you going to do anything fun for us today? No, I'm just going to sit back and relax. Okay, cool. Was I supposed okay. to prepare something? Thanks for coming to work today. <laughs> was I supposed to prepare something? Yeah, was I supposed <laughs> to prepare something? Was... Oh, whoops. 
Ah, shit. Well, I have these notes that I can go through, I suppose. It's called, Who Runs the War, Girls? Who runs the world, girls? girls. Who runs the war, girls? Who runs the war, girls? Yeah. I like it. Girls. I appreciate the Beyonce. uh, I I knew that would entice some singing. I just called her Beyonce. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I am so sorry to the queen. I am so sorry. Beyonce, y'all. It's better than your Beyonce. Beyonce. Glad that didn't last. Oh, I'm bringing it back. Don't worry. I'm going to do it all next weekend when Liz is helping me uh, shop for wedding gowns. All next weekend. She's just going to hear Beyonce. Have fun. Oh, no, my car broke down. Don't worry, Liz. I have AAA. I will call you a ride. We're good. I'm going to be getting text messages at 4 a.m. of yes, your, you are. your dresses. I will respond like six hours later. Oh, we already bought the ugly dress. Sorry. <laughs> it's too late. You weren't there to give feedback, and now she bought the worst dress in the whole now, store. The wedding day is ruined. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not getting up at Well, I mean, you know, I thought we were friends, but that's fine. You know that she's just going to wait to find out judgment which dress you picked, and then she's going to be like, oh, I like that other one better. <laughs> Literally any other one. <laughs> <laughs> I have the worst friends. Worst <sighs> friends ever. Okay, so... Here's the earth. Yes, it's a sweet earth. My segment, as I said, is keeping an eye on the FBI. And so today we're going to talk about the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. Hmm. I've not heard of this. I'm pleasantly surprised there is one of those. Well, there was. Is it a bunch of like conspiracy theory quacks that are like, no, just, this like, is a real thing. For... Okay. Hmm. Let's talk about what was going on. So this is an activist group in the early 1970s who believed in the public's access to FBI documents about current events. The fun thing about this group is that no one knew who they were individually until 2014, when five of the eight members were named and interviewed for the book, The Burglary, The Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI by former Washington Post reporter Betty Medsker. So they were all anonymous. until All anonymous from 1971 until 2014. No one knew who they were. Okay, so let's talk about what was happening for like the three months leading up to these events. The events took place on March 8th, 1971. So what was going on before that? Well, let me tell you. It's Uniform Monday Holiday Act takes effect, which uh, mandated that certain holidays take place on Mondays, like Memorial Day and President's Day and whatever, and thus giving federal workers more long weekends. Apollo 14 returned to Earth after the third moon landing. The EPA and OSHA were established. You're welcome. Ted Cruz desecrated my birthday with his birth that year. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He was there first. (laughs) He ruined it. He ruined it. (laughs) The Cold War, the space race, and the war in Vietnam are in full swing during this time. 
and most relevant to this program, the 1955 production of Oklahoma makes its national television debut as of the first musical. A thousand years ago. Right. (laughs) So it's a three hour Thanksgiving special on CBS that year. Let's talk about the players. So, like I said, some are still unknown. There are eight members total. Seven agreed to be interviewed in 2014, since the five-year statute of limitations had obviously passed on this crime, and none of them could be prosecuted anymore. The crime from 1971. Five of them agreed to be named in the book. The other two are known as, quote, Susan Smith and, quote, Ron Durst. So there's one person who's running around that nobody knows about still. There are two people using aliases and the other five are named in, in the book. How do we even know how many people there are? Because the other people have confirmed. And so in this, they formed specifically to address this Correct. issue from 1971. Okay. Mm-hmm. So first there's Keith Forsyth. He's the designated lock picker of the group. And he became a member of the Camden 28 afterwards, which raided the Camden, New Jersey draft board later that year to protest the draft for the Vietnam War. So they like went in and set fire to the draft cards. Oh, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. They're intense. Bonnie Rains. She infiltrated the FBI. We will come back to her. She was like very well known on the protest scene in Philadelphia for taking stands against the Vietnam War. She's married to John C. Rains, who is also one of the eight. John drove the getaway car. And he's like super anti-war, particularly the Vietnam War. I'm definitely getting those vibes. Well, it seems like Bonnie was specifically against the Vietnam War, whereas John was like a pacifist in general. And John, he was a former Freedom Rider. And for those of you who don't know what the Freedom Riders were, they rode interstate buses into the southern states to protest segregation. Then there's Robert Williamson. He's the youngest of the group. He also became a member of the Candom 28 and burned all those draft cards. There's Judy Feingold. She ran away like cross country from Philadelphia and couldn't be found for 43 years. Like nobody knew where she was. Yeah. Oh, God. Bye, Judy. (laughs) Okay, bye. Yeah. So she contacts Betty Medsker, the journalist who wrote the book, after all the interviews were done. And so she's only included in the epilogue of the book. So she's like kind of an afterthought at this point. And then there's William C. Davidin, who is the recruiter and the leader of this group. He was a physics professor at Haverford College in Philadelphia. This all takes place in the Philadelphia region. I'll get back to that. He consistently was spotted at like local protests against the war in Vietnam. He ended up dying of Parkinson's in 2013, which is a year before the book was published. But he planned to speak publicly about his role in the burglary before his death anyway. So they were like, that's fine. We'll name him. He said he was going public anyway. So those are the players involved. Okay. Got it. All right, let's talk about the recon, the research they did before they did this whole burglary, okay? David Din starts to organize a group of discreet and committed activists to, like, invade the FBI when President Nixon announced the U.S. would invade Cambodia in the summer of 1970. So that's where the idea comes from, this announcement that the U.S. is invading Cambodia. So John and Bonnie Rains, who again are married, they start hosting these planning dinners in the attic of their home, 
because they didn't want to risk anyone seeing like them talking in their dining room. So they go up to the attic. Also, their kids are playing downstairs supervised with everybody else's kids at this point because there were no laws in the 1970s, apparently. Why would there need to be a law about kids playing? They're in the same house. Well, their parents are all in the attic, not watching them and not accessible to them. And these are like small children. Unsupervised. They were oh. playing. Or they like said they were supervised. They are not supervised. <laughs> They're yeah, just sure. like, you know, shoving their hands in electrical outlets and stuff. It's fine. Builds character. Yeah. You know, it's, it was the 70s. It's fine. They legit open the phone book and search for FBI. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't have Google back then. Yeah. They're like, let's find an FBI office that's like not the main Philadelphia one because that's going to have like a shit ton of security and blah, blah, blah. They find a two person office in media PA. Why does the FBI have a two person office and why do they list it in the phone? Oh, it was in the yellow pages. (laughs) Don't you worry. For those of you who are not Pennsylvanians, Media PA is about 30 minutes outside of like Philadelphia city proper. So it's a suburb. It's on the it's on what's referred to as the main line. Why would that exist? I don't know, but it did and it was good for them. So whatever. <laughs> At this point, Bonnie, the wife, goes undercover as a Swarthmore student looking into the FBI's female hiring practices and she essentially cases the joint. Like, she's like, oh, I'm a little Swarthmore student and I just, I'm doing this paper. Will you talk to me, FBI man? And they're like, okay, do you want to see a tour of the building? And she's like, yes, yes, I do. And she's like taking notes the whole time and like drawing diagrams and all of that. Oh my God. (laughs) I know. So she brings back these maps of the interior of the building and the group is like, okay, let's plan our operation. So fast forward to the heist. It's March 8th, 1971, which for those of you who know your boxing history is the same date (laughs) as the fight of the century between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali. So they choose this date specifically because they knew that everyone would be watching the broadcasting of the fight, including the security guards. Mm -hmm. Isn't that like Ocean's Eleven? They planned it during some big boxing event for that same reason or something. Am I remembering that movie correctly? I have not seen Ocean's Eleven. That does sound vaguely familiar. I wonder if they stole that idea from this heist. I'm sh- if that's the case, then yes, they absolutely stole it from this. <laughs> Seven of the eight activists break into the building while John C. Raines waited by Swarthmore College in the getaway car about 10 minutes away. The original door the group planned to use to gain access to the files. And again, these are paper files. There are no computers at this point. So they are physical paper files. The original door has an unpickable lock, which they didn't realize. (laughs) So they move to another entrance to the file room. So that's the only real hitch in this plan at this point. So the second door had a large filing cabinet, like leaning against it. So the group has to wait until they hear loud cheering from people watching the fight downstairs to push the door so that the sound would be muffled. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
they end up shoving over a thousand classified documents into fucking suitcases. Like they just brought a shit ton of suitcases. How did they carry all these suitcases? They just like broke not, in the not been seen. Yeah. Well, because everyone's watching the fight. So <laughs> yeah. Over a thousand classified documents into these suitcases pertaining to Cointel Pro, which is an acronym for counterintelligence program. Uh, and that targets, quote, subversive political groups, such as themselves, feminist organizations, <laughs> the Communist Party of the USA, anti-Vietnam War organizers, civil rights activists, black power activists like Martin Luther King Jr., <laughs> the Nation of Islam and the Black Panther Party, environmentalist and human rights organizations. Animal rights organizations, American Indian Movement, which the acronym is AIM, and that gave me a little chuckle to myself. (laughs) Independence movements, such as Puerto Rican independence groups like the Young Lords, as well as a variety of organizations that were part of the broader new left. So this is all, this is in that two-man office? Yes. So they just happened, like, they looked for an office that was smaller and less... You know, we had less people in it so, to catch yeah. them. But it just so happens that this office also has all the files that they need. Like, why does this tiny little office have all of these right. files? That worked out nicely. It might be copies. So I was looking into that. And uh, while it doesn't necessarily confirm this, my educated guess after looking into all of this is that it was, you know, kind of protocol before you have computers and before you have like a shared drive to send copies of these things to offices. offices. Yeah, to like satellite offices. That's my understanding. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So I'm like, that just works out real nicely that the one that's like the least guarded happens to have all the stuff in it. I mean, my assumption is that those documents are not the only be in the large ones maybe the originals are in the large philadelphia office but these you know these documents also is back in the day when someone went to the local library and like xerox all these ten thousand pages yeah they had their little interns you know running them back and forth between (laughs) philadelphia and media pa you know paper jam exactly So all in all, the heist went off almost perfectly and took less than an hour to complete. Damn. I know, right? So let's talk about the aftermath. The group took the suitcases to a farmhouse to review that night. Don't know why. Don't know why they went to a farmhouse. Whatever. Well, it's a farmhouse just... Could it have legitimately been somebody's house, like a farmhouse style house, like a ranch? I mean, house? they kind of made it sound like they were sitting in a barn, but I mean, maybe it was just somewhere <laughs> that was secluded enough that no one would see that, them. I, I guess so. Yeah. I don't, I guess. So, yeah, that's whatever. The group sent anonymous copies of these documents to three major news outlets and two Democratic elected officials. I couldn't find the names of any of them, but that's what every source said. So, that happened. Cool. After sending the documents, the group agreed that it was safer to like never meet again, never speak of the event again, don't do anything. And so they kept their silence for fucking decades. They never said anything about it again to anyone. And what did like newspapers and everyone do with that information then? I'm so glad you asked, Steph. Segway. <laughs> they, they mostly refused to print the documents, citing, quote, ongoing classified operations and the safety of informants as their reasons. What? Since when does the press care about that kind of shit? 
Yeah. So, they, well, don't. They do care. Yeah. Don't worry. For the people's safety, you don't want to, like, out. Yeah, but they weren't. The same way they don't, like, name minors in most cases, unless it's all. Yeah, but they could say, I don't know. Like, you would think knowledge. that with this big, juicy story that was just thrown in their laps, they would say something about it. Yeah, maybe just redact certain certain names or yeah, you know whatever. Yeah, but I mean, it was essentially talking about how the government like targeted these organizations and used like illegal surveillance to, you know, track them. Also, like super against the Constitution, but whatevs. So the Washington Post fact checked everything. They took a couple days to figure this out. Like I said, this whole heist happened on March eighth. So on March twenty fourth. The Washington Post breaks the story. They publish like excerpts from the document and like a summarizing story on the front page. Okay, so they do publish something then. Yeah, Washington Post breaks it. Okay. The FBI is obviously pissed and they're like, what the fuck? And so they assigned 200 agents to figure out the identities of these burglars. Well, they obviously failed. Question. What? Did they... I mean, they must have noticed right away that all this shit was stolen from them, did they not? Right. So they just... They did. Didn't do anything about it? Well, first they were like, okay, maybe no one will notice. And then when the documents show up in the press, they're like, all right, well, now we have to hold someone accountable. Somebody noticed. (laughs) Yeah. But even when people didn't notice... Like, until that moment, did they not care themselves finding out what happened? It didn't seem so from all of the things that I said. It seemed like it was more of an internal... They were like, okay, who the fuck misplaced these documents? Like, these thousands of pages of documents. Misplaced documents and also knocked over this. Yeah. Like, broke into a, an office. Right. Like, they were not misplaced. They knew that. Yeah, but, they, but they're not saying anything. So now, you know, March 24th, WAPO releases everything. And they're like, well, shit. So the FBI is like, don't worry, we are getting 200 agents on this. We're going to figure this out. Like, these guys will not get away with this. Well, they totally got away with it because the statute of limitations expired. It's a five-year statute. So, like, they had people working day and night on this. 200 agents working on this day and night. And they fucked up. They couldn't find them. So there you go. The conclusion is that sometimes you have to break the law to be the best watchdog and to get a little justice for the people. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Woo! And that is my segment. Did anything come of these things being put in the paper? Like, was there any kind of public outrage or insti- like riots, instigating reform or anything? Well, now the public knows, like, hey, the government is surveilling these... M- essentially minority groups because it's you know women's rights civil rights you know animal rights etc and so you know in the public consciousness it's like what the fuck like you know big brother is watching us so it's one of the first examples of like big brother is creeping around the corner like and it confirmed that the suspicions that the public had that that was the case we would not have had that information without these people taking matters into their own hands and breaking into the FBI. It's really impressive how smoothly that whole thing went down. Yeah, it's like 
it was definitely it should very, not be that easy. <laughs> it shouldn't be that easy to break into the FBI. No, and steal a bunch of documents and well, get I'm out sure of the building. Now it's not. Well, yeah. well it's <laughs> probably less easy. Yes. <laughs> Damn. Not that I'm encouraging breaking into the FBI and stealing confidential documents. But so in 2014, that's right around like the Edward Snowden stuff. Mm. And I think that was the main prompt to write the book was like, hey, these, this is like the predecessor to Edward Snowden. Like these guys stole documents. They've lived in fear for 40 or well, 35 of the 40 years that they've remained anonymous. They were living in fear of being caught. You know, they had to wait for the five-year statute. But we consider them American heroes. Why don't we consider Edward Snowden a hero? You know, it kind of opened that whole can of worms. So that's my segment. I'm going to tell you guys about a man named Elmer McCurdy. Fudd. Elmer Fudd. Nope. Elmer McCurdy. Mm, Disappointing. (laughs) What a name. Boo. He was born in Maine on New Year's Day, 1880. So he was born on 1880, essentially. Yeah. I've never met like a New Year's baby. Oh, I have. I had one that sat next to me in homeroom in high school. And he would always say he was born on 1988. (laughs) And and it made me laugh. (laughs) But don't check. I know. He was born to a woman named Sadie who was 17 at the time and unmarried. So, gasp. Oh, scandalous. For shame. Also, the identity of his father was unknown. One possibility is that it was Sadie's cousin, which was only at the time, like, just becoming taboo. Like, 1880 is actually around the time that, like, you weren't allowed to do things with your cousin. But before that, it was otherwise, like, acceptable. People didn't really have qualms about it. So right around the time, that wasn't taboo. But we still don't really know who it was regardless. But in order to save Sadie from the embarrassment and shame of raising an illegitimate child, her brother and his wife adopted Elmer. So basically, he was raised by his aunt and uncle. Okay. Believing that his mom was his aunt. I mean, people still know that Sadie was the one who was pregnant. Like, that wasn't... I'm sure people saw that in town. I mean, unless she went to a farm upstate or like a convent. Yeah, but I think just to have the son be raised by a respectable couple would kind of like redeem both of them. Because it's like, okay, you fucked up, but like, at least you're doing what's best for your kid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what what age, but Sadie did eventually tell Elmer the truth. Like, actually, I'm not your aunt. I'm your mom. And this disturbed him to the point where he became, quote, unruly and rebellious. And so as a teenager, he began drinking heavily and kind of just became like a behavioral problem child. I mean, like, what teenager is not unruly? Like, (laughs) he was, I don't know. But at least he had respectable parents. Yeah. (laughs) That was what was best for that kid. Clearly. He eventually moved in with his grandfather and became an apprentice plumber. So he was actually a pretty competent worker, according to like all accounts, that he lived comfortably as a plumber and was just like your average main, like blue collar dude. Joe the plumber. Until the economic downturn of eighteen ninety eight, where he lost his job. 
And then within a couple of years of that, he also lost his mother and his grandfather. They both oh. passed away of unrelated health issues. Like his birth mother or like the mother who His real raised mother. Him? Okay. So that's when he's in his like late teens, early 20s. And okay. even though he doesn't need a legal guardian, obviously at that but point, that's a bummer. it's still just like a lot of shitty stuff. Okay. He leaves Maine and he starts drifting around the U.S., just like bumming around from job to job, plumber and sometimes a minor. That feels like two different skill sets. <laughs> I think like mining, just they would take anybody. Okay. Manual labor. Yeah. All right. But either way, he couldn't hold a job down for very long regardless because of his alcoholism. So that's why he was bumming around from state to state, job to job. It makes it a little challenging. That's why you got to become a functional alcoholic. If you become functional, <laughs> then you're fine. Come on, Elmer. Damn it, Elmer. Maybe we don't promote that. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, people probably shouldn't be taking life advice from us anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> You're in the wrong place, you guys. <laughs> Don't do manual labor are. drunk. Let's just put that message out there. <laughs> we are here for the laughs. We are not here to give life advice. Please don't do what we do. Thank you. <laughs> we don't do functional alcoholism. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> so Elmer eventually moves to Kansas. But he's arrested in 1905 for public intoxication. So he decides like. At this point, maybe I should clean up my life a bit. So in 1907, he joins the U.S. Army. Okay. He becomes a machine gun operator, and he was also trained to use nitroglycerin for demolition purposes. Okay. So let's not forget that fun little fact. Nitroglycerin. He was honorably discharged in 1910. We don't know why. I have theories later that I'll get to, but uh, all we know is he, he was honorably discharged. So after he's discharged, he meets up with some of his army friends in Kansas, where they are later arrested for possessing burglary paraphernalia. What? Wait, what is included in burglary paraphernalia? Well, let me like, tell what you. What is that? Oh, great. <laughs> Chisels, hacksaws. <laughs> gunpowder, okay. and money sacks. Oh, okay. I, until you got to money sacks. I mean, <laughs> it is suspicious, but can they can they prove just on that alone that they were going to burgle someone? I mean... Is that the, is that the verb? It's suspicious items associated with an illegal activity. I mean, okay. Think of, like, what's-his-face in Colorado that shot up the movie theater, and he was, like... yes. Like, he had these hordes of explosives and weapons and shit, and nobody flagged him, but these guys have some chisels and some bags, and they're caught. Like, what happened, America? When did we lose our steam there? I mean, it's not like a sandwich bag. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no. I mean, I think it's a little circumstantial, but, like, I was, I was going to make that argument until the money bags thing. <laughs> but it's like, well, yeah. what are you, what are you going to do with the money bags except, like put money stolen goods somewhere (laughs) along the line we lost our ability to uh to discern these things things. (laughs) like what's his face in las vegas how many years ago like how many weapons did he have and nobody flagged him just feel like somewhere we lost our steam we used to be able to get people for money bags yep well don't worry they actually got away i said they were arrested i didn't say they were charged so they told the judge that the tools were for a foot operated machine gun they were inventing which what? i also still think i don't know who's just why do you need to invent machine guns 
It was the 1800s. Um, because it was for an invention that they were working on and not for burglary, allegedly. Um, what? They were found not guilty. Okay. It, it seems worse. See, we're still not able to do these <laughs> Why things. Why so Fine. They got away, Steph. That was your whole point. <laughs> All right. Thanks, well, I guess Steph. We never had our shit together. Okay. Yeah. We never lost our shit. We just never had it. Got it. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes free. Can't lose what you And don't then have. after proving that he wasn't trying to rob a bank, he begins robbing banks. Sure. <laughs> he decides to incorporate so his training with nitroglycerin into his robberies. So thanks, U.S. Army, for giving him those Laced. skills. With nitroglycerin. That was Panic at the Disco. Is that Sorry. A song? Yeah, that was okay. Panic at the Disco. <laughs> so either his training sucked, or <laughs> the reason why he was honorably discharged is because he like never picked up the necessary skills to properly use nitroglycerin. That sounds more likely. Every time he used it in a robbery, like shit went south. Fast. Wait, so you're saying that the army honorably discharged him because they're like oh you try so hard and you can't do it like okay that's my speculation okay bye i mean it's not grounds <laughs> to dishonorably discharge someone just right no that's job. what i'm saying yeah. that's why he got honorably so discharged it's just like yeah. you know what you're not really cut out for this he gave it the old college try like, like good try buddy yeah yeah smell you so later that, for the record thanks for trying speculation yeah <laughs> nobody knows for sure Okay. I mean, that seems valid. But in March 1911, so 1911, <laughs> this is just a couple months after he was found not guilty. He is now in Oklahoma, and with three other accomplices, he decides to rob a train after hearing that one of the cars has a safe on it with $4,000. Well, can he open the safe? The nitroglycerin's for Tracy. Okay. That seems. But he sucks with the nitroglycerin. <laughs> this is a flawed plan. He's going to blow up the goddamn train. He doesn't, he doesn't know that yet until right now. It's not a very subtle way of breaking into a safe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're not going for subtlety. This is like the West, like cops and robbers yeah. thing where, like, Wild you know, West. in big dramatic fashion, they stop this train. Ah. They locate the safe. Women clutch their pearls and, and yeah, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Okay. Well, they like hold guns to them or something to yeah, mm-hmm. keep yep. them at bay. Got it. Mm-hmm. They got the big hats. Does he have a hat? Does he have a hat? Probably. So, okay. <laughs> as long as we can speculatively confirm that he was wearing a cowboy hat. <laughs> when he finds the safe, he uses too much night nitroglycerin so he destroys the entire safe in trying to open it along with most of the money inside and so these are the days of money is mostly coins not dollar bills sure Mm-hmm. So all the silver coins melt and fuse <laughs> to the safe frame. Oh, no. No. <laughs> and they managed to salvage only $450. In, I mean, in back then money or in today's money? In back then money. All I right. did not convert to today money I mean, for this segment. decent. So later that year, he gets away with this. And later that year, he and two other men robbed the Citizens Bank in Kansas. So for this heist... They spend two hours breaking through the bank wall with a hammer. 
again, he uses nitroglycerin to blast open the vault door. This time wait, he's successful. Wait, 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 so wait. he gets the I, vault door open. We just let that pass. So he's like at the wall with a hammer? Yes. In Why he didn't just blast his way through that too, I don't know. Maybe he only had a limited amount of nitroglycerin. Uh, okay. For two hours and no one noticed or cared. I was going to say, like, we're... Yeah. Where are the people who are working there? Where are the people? Bumfuck, who- Kansas, nineteen eleven. Is it an abandoned know. bank? Like, <laughs> <laughs> are they just standing inside? Like the tellers being like, "What is that noise?" For two hours. I presume it was not during business hours. Mm. I mean, okay, and but it's nineteen eleven. Bumfuck, Kansas. The security guards were watching the fight. You guys, <laughs> 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 they were very busy. They were at the saloon. (laughs) So they get through the wall by hammer and then they blast open the vault door, but then there's still the safe inside the vault. And so for that safe, the nitroglycerin fails to ignite. So he can't get a blast at all. Okay. And in the meantime, like they're taking so long and it's not working. So their lookout man gets scared and runs off. So Elmer and his other accomplices, they just, uh, steal $150 in coins that were outside of the safe. So like most of the money was in the safe, but there were like bank teller trays or something mm-hmm. like okay. And hanging around in the vault, so like the lower value stuff, so they just like snatched some coins and ran off. So $150 is all they got out of womp, that. Womp. Yeah, that's definitely I wonder cool. per person like hourly what that works out to like they spent three hours That's breaking for in sure less like than minimum wage. <laughs> for sure less than minimum wage <laughs> get a job you bum exactly so 150 that they got away with would be about four thousand dollars today oh among how many people he had two accomplices in this house. Right. So yeah. they should get like $1,300. Well, that's assuming they split it evenly. He's the brain. So that's he would true. probably get two. And then they, they, would, and then they would have to split the other two between them. All right. I mean, not bad, but not what they wanted. I, I don't think it's worth it. I'm just saying like there are easier ways to make a. Oh, like, they got four 450 grand. before that. Right. So that was three times that. So well, that's a significantly better times. payday. Yes, but it was still much less than they wanted. But 12000 is not bad. However, you're on a train, so you can get, like, motion sickness. So really, that's just, like, hazard pay. <laughs> For the train, if they got $4,000 from that, it would have been $100,000. Okay, see, that's more stuff. reasonable. I thought you said they got $450 off the train. But yeah, if they got the 4000 that they Oh, okay, gotcha. If they, they wanted 4000 Got it, got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. For his final robbery, which was in October 1911. Why do I keep saying 11? October 1911. <laughs> I don't know. 1911. It was also in Oklahoma. Oklahoma, which aired as a Thanksgiving special. Where the winds go sweeping down the plains? Yes. Yes, they do. We're done. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, McCurdy and two accomplices planned to rob a freight train after hearing that it contained $400,000 in cash. Oh, well, that's significantly better. Yeah. Side note, this money was intended as royalty payment to the Osage Nation. So oh, no. Taking the money that was intended for the indigenous God peoples. damn it. White people. Mm-hmm. The Why? worst. 
We're the worst. In true Elmer McCurdy fashion, he accidentally stops the wrong train. <laughs> Amazing. That's so Elmer. <laughs> He's just being Elmer. It's a passenger train. And so this is definitely the situation where, you know, women are clutching their pearls and all that. Excellent. So they're just like, well, you know, we already went through the hassle of stopping this train. We're just going to rub the people on it. So they make off with $46 from the mail clerk. Nope. Two jugs of whiskey. Oh, okay. An automatic revolver, a coat, and the train conductor's watch. All right. Well, super worth it. A newspaper called it. Quote, one of the smallest in the history of train robbery. Yeah, that's that's depressing. You don't want to have that record. $46. And whiskey. And a watch. And a coat. Don't forget the coat. I won't forget the coat. You're right. Only one person gave up their coat. Oh, coats are expensive. It was October. It could have been chilly. It was chilly. Disappointed by the haul. Sure. Uh, he fled to a friend's ranch in Oklahoma where he began drinking all the demijohns of whiskey that he stole. Mm-hmm. And so a demijohn is mm-hmm. not a standard unit, but generally they're between three to ten gallons. Okay. Right. So, so he has two jugs of whiskey. So he has between six and twenty gallons of whiskey. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. going to say, that's a pretty big, like, discrepancy. <laughs> they're not standardized. It's just, like, bootleg West. Like, you make a... Yeah. It's a generic term for any jug. All right. That's, like, not a gallon. Okay. Gotcha. Several gallons. So he holds up on like a in a shed on his friend's ranch on the lamb, drinking his maybe twenty gallons of whiskey. <laughs> and meanwhile, he's been identified and implicated in the robbery. So there's a two thousand dollar reward out for his capture. So after like three days of binge drinking, a posse of three sheriffs and some armed locals tracked Elmer to the ranch using bloodhounds and they surrounded the shed and waited for daylight. So then in the morning when Elmer noticed like this gang outside of the shed, he starts shooting at them. So he initiates gunfire. Why didn't they just go in that night? Why did they wait till morning? That's a good question. And I don't know. Gave him time to sober up. This is just not a well thought Make it a fair fight. Well, after a one hour standoff, Elmer was killed by a single gunshot wound to the chest. Oh, that'll do it. So if you were tracking the dates, his... I wasn't. Burglary career spanned less than a year. Yeah. But he was so good at it. (laughs) That's such a shame. Yep. And every attempt was also terribly botched. (laughs) Yeah. The reward for someone who stole $46 was $2,000. And the whiskey. Who knows what that was valued at? 20 gallons of whiskey could be worth a lot. And that yeah. coat, that was and a nice coat. They might have also been linking him to some of his other stuff. That coat was made of or gold. Maybe just like assuming that he was like at high risk of attacking again. I mean, high risk of trying again, but not at high risk of succeeding and doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that dangerous. Like, the attempt could have been there, but <laughs> well, his body was taken to an undertaker in Oklahoma, where it went unclaimed. So as I previously mentioned, you know, he didn't really have much of a family anymore. Yeah, they all died. Yep. So the undertaker, Joseph Johnson, embalmed the body with an arsenic-based preservative, which was common when you knew that you were preserving a body for a long period of time, such Mm -hmm. as 
if they were going to go unclaimed. So if okay, if they had been claimed and you were going to be like burying them, you really like wouldn't go go through that process. Sure. Like you wouldn't bother. But knowing that like he'd be holding on to this body for an unknown amount of time, he embalmed it with this like arsenic based preservative. Cool, cool, cool. He shaved his face, dressed the body in a suit, you know, get it all ready for service and stored it in the back of the funeral home refusing to bury the body until he was paid for his undertaking services and who's supposed to pay him is whoever claims the body whoever claims the body I yeah. guess. yeah for somebody to come forward gotcha in the meantime since nobody was coming forward and he just like had this body on his hands he decided to exhibit elmer to make money so oh. he took him out of his suit dressed the corpse up in like oh, no. street clothes so like cowboy wardrobe uh, placed a rifle in his hands and stood it up in the corner of the funeral I, I kind I've of remember this. hearing the story now yeah this yeah, part of it sounding familiar as yeah. it gets to the end this might sound familiar I think I've heard this before but it's fantastic I forgot what your title was until you just said that I didn't yep. connect I, was, I didn't even think about how there was no carnival I, I until this connected point. no dots continue <laughs> no dots were connected didn't remember your segment title <laughs> For a nickel, the undertaker allowed visitors to see, quote, the bandit who wouldn't give up and became a popular attraction and drew the attention of carnival promoters. And so the undertaker received numerous offers to sell Elmer's corpse, but he refused. Even though he was exhibiting it himself for money, he just like, as an undertaker, didn't want to give up the body unless it was to his family to claim it. He has his standards. Amazing. He has his integrity. (laughs) And ethics. Yeah. So on October 6, 1916, so this is five years after he's been killed, a man calling himself Aver, or Aver, I have no idea how I'm supposed to say this. Sure. Contacted Joseph Johnson, claiming to be Elmer's long-lost brother from California. Mm. They all come out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. Did he have any brothers? I don't think he did. No. Okay. He was an only child. Okay. Thought so. So Aver had already contacted the sheriff and a local attorney to get permission to take custody of the body and ship it to San Francisco for a proper burial. So I don't know how he managed to prove any relationship, but he he went through like the proper channels to like make his claim. And and I I mean, I assume you can just forge a document at that point. He's a better criminal than Elmer was. (laughs) I mean, yeah, for sure. They can't possibly re- steal be anything, but he this managed g- to get his body stolen. <laughs> this guy, you know, oh, they can't possibly God. be related because this guy like actually committed a crime. So <laughs> the next day they arrive and Avra has with him another man who calls himself Wayne and is also claiming to be Elmer's brother. So now he has so two he brothers. Has a whole big family. So he has yeah. two brothers now. Yeah, but they're so long Johnson lost. releases the body. The men, though, instead of sending it to San Francisco, they send it to Kansas because spoilers, they lied about who they are. <laughs> what? What a twist! I'm so surprised. Oh my god, my mind is blown. Plot twist. The men were, in fact, James and Charles Patterson, who owned the Great Patterson Carnival shows, mm-hmm. which was a traveling carnival. Creepy. This is the greatest show. That was Steph that time. That was Steph. <laughs> I didn't I sing do occasionally. It. <laughs> I'm definitely rubbing off on you. Continue. Oh fuck. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly the response. 
After learning about the popular embalmed bandit exhibit, the two concocted a scheme to take possession of the body. And so they featured it in Patterson's traveling carnival as, quote, the outlaw who would never be captured alive. Yeah, because he's dead. All the way up until like, 1922 when Patterson sold his operation to Lewis Sonny. Damn, I really wanted you to say to Barnum and Bailey. Like, I really <laughs> wanted that. Negative. <sighs> Damn it. So Lewis Sonny then used Elmer's corpse in his traveling, quote, Museum of Crime show, which featured wax replicas of famous outlaws such as Bill Doolin and Jesse James. Except for this corpse, which was absolutely not wax. Mm-hmm. And he of this man who is absolutely not an outlaw. Well, he is, but really I mean, he's one. a wannabe. Not, not a very good one. Not a good one. So in 1933, it was acquired for a time by director Dwayne Esper to promote his film Narcotic. It has an exclamation point. Oh, boy. I just <laughs> thought you were really excited. <laughs> it's about drug addiction. And so I think he kind of like rented the corpse from Lewis Sonny. And so he exhibited the corpse in the lobby of movie theaters to promote his film. And so he would tell moviegoers that the corpse belonged to a, quote, dead dope fiend who had killed himself while surrounded by police after he had robbed a drugstore to support his habit. Just making up all kinds of shit. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool, cool. Is that a more interesting story than like a train robber? Well, because it was to promote his film about drug abuse. Oh, okay. All right. So he was was trying to link it to the plot of narcotic. Narcotic! Narcotic! (laughs) (laughs) By this time, the corpse is 22 years old. So it's basically become mummified. So the skin was hard and shriveled, which caused the whole body to shrink. So it was like he was like slightly shorter than he was in real life. It was shrinking. And. The director claimed that the skin's deterioration was proof that the supposed dope fiend's drug abuse. Oh, that's gross. Yes. Yeah, that's how he explained that to moviegoers. Who wants to see this thing? I would not pay for this, you guys. People like the macabre or the macabre. So after the movie, Narcotic, (laughs) the body goes back to Lewis Sonny, but he dies in 1949. So he places the corpse in storage in a Los Angeles warehouse. And it sits there for, like, another, like, 20 years, almost. And in 1964, his son, who, like, now has ownership of his company and property, lends the corpse to a filmmaker. Uh, So it makes a brief appearance in a 1967 film called She Freak. And then in 1968, he sells the body along with other wax figures for $10,000 to the Hollywood He's not wax a wax museum. figure. He's not a so wax figure. Don't worry, we'll get Did there. Did they not realize it at this point? Because it's been 20 oh, years God. in storage. And he's like, oh, I found this mm-hmm. wax thing. 40. And I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was 20 years in storage. And then okay, his okay, son fine. found it and didn't know, like, wasn't around when it was fresher. This is so gross. So he's like, oh, this it. must be a wax dummy because why would my dad have a freaking rotting corpse in his storage <laughs> unit. That's like the worst thing you could possibly find on like storage wars. <laughs> like, let me see what treasures I found in here. Oh, it's a wax dummy. That's I hate it. Negative I hate it. Oh, Just God. kidding. Oh. It's a human fucking corpse. Oh. This is horrific. So the Hollywood Wax Museum then loans it to two Canadian men who had a wax exhibit of their own. 
And while being exhibited there, the corpse sustains some damage in a windstorm because apparently it was an outdoor exhibit. I don't know why it was oh, it's an outdoor windstorm. corpse. <laughs> <laughs> this poor, like, 50 year old corpse just takes a strong wind to break it into pieces. Oh. <laughs> Who wants to look at this thing? Oh, I hate everything. I hate it. It loses the tips of its ears along with some fingers and just toes a tip. blown off. <laughs> yeah. Tips of its ears. Oh, oh God. That's oh horrible. God. Eventually, they return into the Hollywood Wax Museum. But at that point, the owner decides that it looks, quote, too gruesome and not lifelike enough to exhibit. Oh, Wait, oh. it was lifelike enough before? <laughs> oh. It was already leathery and gross from narcotics, apparently. Yes. Well, by the time it had gone to narcotics, it was leathery gross. They didn't do anything to the body. Right, I know. I'm just saying, but this is like years after that. So, it's, yeah. of course, it's already looking gross. Why were you ever displaying it in your Hollywood star exhibit? So he sold it to the Pike, which is an amusement zone in Long Beach, California. And in 1976... It was hanging in a, quote, laugh-in-the-dark funhouse. No. Hanging? Pike. Yes. No. So. No thanks. In December 1976, a production crew filming the television show The Six Million Dollar Man. Oh, I know this part. At the Pike filming on location. So they were doing a scene that takes place in the the laugh-in-the-dark funhouse with a bunch of like automatic set pieces that trigger at different points in the scene to deliver pop-up scares. Mm -hmm. So in between scenes, the art director was staging, you know, the visual effects in the laugh house or the fun house. And so he takes this wax dummy and which is covered in glow in the dark, like orange paint. (laughs) And it has a hangman's noose. Oh my god. Jesus Christ. This poor man's corpse. Like, I know he was kind yeah. of an idiot, but, like, he doesn't deserve to be covered in neon orange paint and hung from a funhouse ceiling. Orange glow in the dark Jesus paint. Christ. Christ. Because he stole $46. <laughs> Crime doesn't pay. The art director is, like, staging the wax dummy when he accidentally pulls the mannequin's arm oh! off. Oh no! And notices... No! No! Human bone and muscle tissue. Ah! Ah! <laughs> so the production called the police. And then the police call the paramedics to report, <laughs> quote, a severe case of dehydration. What? <laughs> no. So what are the paramedics going to do? What are the paramedics? This guy is and long dead. No, you don't. You do not need EMS <laughs> yeah. right now. Yeah, they were like, Do not this try is CPR. not a case of dehydration. This is a corpse. This is very much a corpse. They take it to the LA coroner's office and they conduct an autopsy. And found out that he's already been embalmed. <laughs> yeah. Like- so a few things. They determine that the man had been shot in the chest. I mean, okay. And some hair was visible on, still like on his head. And his some fingers and toes were missing. Oh, oh, where'd they go? Where are they? They were blown off in the windstorm. I know, but just like, just where in the world are they right now? (laughs) Just where are they? (laughs) It's just a finger rolling around in the wind. I don't like this. I do not approve. The examination also revealed incisions from his original autopsy and embalming. They also found. 
that the body was completely petrified, covered in wax, and then the -the glow-in-the-dark paint. I am also completely petrified by this story. (laughs) (laughs) Tests conducted on the tissue showed the presence of arsenic, so that helped them date the corpse because they stopped using arsenic for embalming after the 1920s. And also the bullet, the original bullet was removed in you know, his autopsy in 1911, but the bullet jacket was still there. And so that also helped date the corpse. Oh. And they found more clues, such as when they removed his lower jawbone for like dental analysis, mm. they Gross. found mm. inside his mouth a 1924 penny. I was going to say, I and, thought, didn't they allow people to put pennies in his mouth or something? Yeah. At the carnival? Oh. Oh. Yeah, so that would be a thing. You could like put pennies in there. I remember when I heard the story about putting like coins in his mouth. Ugh. Yeah. So they found in his mouth a penny from 1924 and also ticket stubs, including to Lewis Sunny's Museum of Crime. So these were all clues that helped link together like who this body belonged to. So the investigators contacted Lewis Sunny's son, who confirmed that the body was Elmer McCurdy. And then with that information, forensic anthropologists also confirmed a positive ID. So they finally, you know, identified Elmer McCurdy as this body. And so it's unclear at what point in all of its transfers to different owners, his identity became lost and somebody legitimately thought it was a wax figure. But at some point he was then covered in wax and people didn't even know that they were dealing with a corpse anymore. Did anyone get in trouble for this? That seems like super deceptive. For selling human bodies? No, no. No, no, no I, okay, no. This is fine. <laughs> Everything is fine. It's fine. I don't know uh, what the laws against that are. I feel like at no point in time should it have been legal to sell a human corpse to display at a carnival. I don't know. I hate everything. <laughs> like those carnival sideshows, I imagine, had like weird corpses and stuff. Ugh. Ugh. Isn't it like Ripley's? Like Ripley's just has like body parts in jars or something and they sell them and I don't know. He, nobody ever claimed him. Yeah. So Ugh. the only person that would be in trouble theoretically based on my limited understanding of what the laws were would have been the two brothers who, who bought it initially and forced to be their his shit. brother. Yeah. yeah. And then, so from there, everybody just thought that they were gross, legitimate owners of. <laughs> yeah. of I hate it. I hate it. This is so gross. So Elmer's story spread widely in the media, and several funeral homes called the coroner's office, offering their services free of charge to give him a proper burial. But officials, even after all this time, it's fucking 1976. They wanted to wait to see if any living relatives oh, come on. would come forward, of come which the there fuck were none. On. So eventually, a man named Fred Olds, who represents the, um, the Indian Territory Posse of Oklahoma Westerns, which sounds quite ridiculous, but it's a legitimate organization that promotes the study and preservation of the history of the, Mir- of the American West. So they kind of like, like a cultural preservation thing. So they convinced authorities to allow like him and the organization to bury the body in Oklahoma, like where he lived his adult life and just like put him to rest. So in April 22nd, 1977, so this is 66 years after his death, he's finally buried in Oklahoma. 
300 people attend the graveside service, presumably just like interested Looky locals or sure. the yeah the or the media or members of the organization of Oklahoma Westerns. Mm-hmm. And he was buried next to an actual outlaw, Bill Doolin. Oh, he probably liked that. <laughs> Who, as mentioned earlier, he was featured next to Bill Doolin's wax figure Aww. when people thought that he was a wax figure. Oh. I mean, that's kind of full circle. Yeah. Taking a page out of the Lincoln playbook, or maybe it was actually vice versa, because I don't remember what years these are related to each other. But oh. to ensure that Elmer's body would not be stolen... They poured two feet of concrete over the casket because they were afraid that people interested in Elmer's body would still come around and try to snatch it up and continue displaying it. Jesus. Carnivals. Come on. So he rests in peace under concrete where he cannot be snatched up again. Seriously, people, don't. No one should do that. That shouldn't be a concern. And that's the carnival corpse. Hooray! Yay. That scarred me. I'm petrified. You're welcome. Tracy. Yes. Who runs the war? Girls. Girls. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the badass women spies in World War II that helped us win the war. Go girls. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yep. In 1942, Churchill set up the Special Operations Executive, or the SOE, and their mission was to, quote, set Europe ablaze. Oh. Figuratively? Uh, A little bit literally. Yeah. Little column A, little column B. (laughs) So what they did, the SOE, is they dropped agents into occupied countries. And their goal was to essentially undermine and sabotage the Nazis. So they were recruiting agents. Like once they got dropped into these countries, they were recruiting agents, establishing networks. A lot of what we're going to focus on is the ones in France. They were establishing like spy networks, agents in France. Do they get dropped in by like parachute? Because when you say they drop them in these places, I'm like... Yes. Did they literally jump out of planes yes. and land? Sometimes it was by, they would like the plane would land. Sometimes it was by ship. But a lot of times it was, they were literally parachuted into these countries at night and like landed on the ground and were like picked up by agents that were already there and like brought to safe houses and stuff. So yeah, nice. literally dropped into the countries via parachute. It's fascinating. So they established the networks. They would receive shipments, transport contraband, such as explosives set up the safe houses, like I said, manage communications between France and, like, England, uh, London. And they would also, like, seek out traitors within France, within the resistance movement there. And these agents, they weren't all women. There was, you know, we're going to focus on the women, but it was men and women at this time. They were trained in sabotage, small arms, radio and telegraph communications, and unarmed combat. They were also trained to resist interrogation and evade capture. And some of them even hid like suicide pills in their coats so that should they be in a position where they, you know, were afraid they would give up information or they knew they were caught and like there was no other option. They they had these suicide pills with them that they could just take and end it so they couldn't give up information. It's dark, but okay. Yeah. They had all kinds of like really cool inventions that you would think were something out of 
like James Bond. James Bond. Yeah. So like pens that yeah. exploded. They had lipstick that had yeah. a microphone in it. Yeah, stuff like that. Like they would have weapons that were disguised as everyday objects like umbrellas and pipes and these like special waterproof containers that they could protect their important items in during like parachute drops just in case they ended up in like water or something. Like I said before, they were parachuted into France or dropped by or like dropped off by plane or by ship. Other counterintelligence agencies at this time were like Britain's M15 and 16. They mainly wanted to use women to extract information from men by seducing them. So they figured they could like use Excellent. women to like yeah. Like they didn't recognize their badass capabilities. They just thought that like, oh, you're a woman, you're pretty, you can just like, you know, bat your eyelashes at this man and get him to like reveal information to Real you. Honey pot. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, that's how we got information on the heist. So in media Pennsylvania. I mean, it's not I guess it, it is a, a a way that works. I mean, it's effective, but <laughs> But it's not like the only thing women can do. No, certainly not. Yeah. But the SOE recruited women to be actual agents and trained them in all of these like sabotage and radio use and things like that. And they were delivering things. They were couriers. They were doing all kinds of badass stuff. Not just Hashtag like, equality. Yeah. Not just batting their eyelashes at Nazis. So why they chose women. So at the time, a lot of the French men were off at labor camps in Germany. So women blended in because if you start dropping off men or be like, well, why are you here? Why aren't you at a labor camp? Why aren't you doing X, Y, Z? So it was more common to see a lot of women in the area. Mm, That makes sense. Yeah. So you can't just have a bunch of men infiltrating because they just they stand out like a sore thumb, whereas all these women are around at the time. Sure. Women were also believed to be more psychologically suited because they were, quote, secretive, accustomed to isolation and possessed a cool and lonely courage. Whatever the fuck that means. But her hormones! <laughs> I don't understand! We were accustomed to isolation, apparently. Why? Why were we so isolated? Because our men are off at labor camps? I don't know. Okay. I'm just gonna let that ride. <laughs> they also thought that women had empathy and caretaker instincts that suited them to recruiting regular citizens to become agents. Okay. So they could just So they were like charismatic, empathetic, etc. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And be like, I'll take care of you, enter into my circle, I'll take you under my wing. Kind People of thing. were more likely to trust you. I will mentor you. Yes. Let mama take care of you. Mm-hmm. Put your head to my bosom, young child. <laughs> exactly. They made good couriers because they could ingratiate themselves to others well and kind of play naive if things got out of control and they were in a tight spot. So basically, I am like, but a woman. Because I'm a simple woman. I didn't know. You could just play dumb, I guess. How am I to know? People would believe them because, oh my God, she's a woman. She couldn't possibly know what she was doing. I'm going to play that card now. Like... Oh, poor Tracy. She's but a woman. She's all these hormones and emotions and tears, and she didn't realize what she was doing. Her uterus prevents her from being a productive member of society. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, it kind of does, but whatever. Your French accent is impeccable. (laughs) That's very true for you. But I guess this mindset was, wasn't was off because the Germans had the stereotypical view of women as just like homemakers. I mean, you know? know thine enemy. Like, so, if it works, it works. Yeah. For a while, the Germans were like, did not suspect the women at all and were totally sure. blindsided when they came to realize that women were actually 
you know, doing stuff and not just... So weird. Yeah, not just making, you know, being homemakers and living in fear of the war. Sure. 39 women in total were sent to France. From, there was, these are from Britain. So they had to have British citizenship and they had to speak French like a native mm. to, in order to like completely blend in. Sure. So I, I started on this, being interested in this because I read a book called The Lost Girls of Paris, which is a historical fiction about women who were recruited to do this and like their, their experience in France cool. and being agents and how like, you know, the main character was just this young woman who had a daughter and her husband had left her and somehow she's and she speaks French really well and she got recruited and sent over and everything. And I, I didn't read this in my um, research this time around, but at the book they were doing things like even if your teeth, the way your fillings were done were different than the way the French fillings were done. They would like even redo that. Like they would take oh, your geez. fillings out and redo Ooh, them to like blend in with France. Have to go through that. Yeah, and like the woman in the book was her necklace. Be a was patriot, taken. Elizabeth. Her necklace was taken away from her because something about the necklace didn't allow her to blend in well enough with France or something, or it was too personal. So like all of your okay. personal effects were changed. Your appearance was changed if you know if necessary to make yourself look I mean, as I French guess that as possible. Makes sense. But even down to the details of, like, your teeth, you know? Wow. I believe that. It was, like, an accurate Don't thing. Don't British notoriously have terrible teeth to begin with? They do. I think so, yes. So it wouldn't just, like... But I guess the way the French did their redone. fillings was different than the way the British did their fillings, like, for cavities. So they had to change them. Maybe you couldn't have terribly British teeth. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't that be interesting if people just did it for the dental? Like... <laughs> <laughs> I, I just like really need braces. So. High risk for low reward. I don't know. Yeah. I just really so. need some orthodontia. So I'm going <laughs> to, you know, so. fight the Nazis. <laughs> yep. Yep. So of these 39 women, one third never came back. Hmm. Some ended up in Ravensburg, which was a women's concentration camp. Some were poisoned. Some were shot. Many of them were tortured and interrogated. Most of them never gave up any information, despite you know what they endured the torture. Yeah, because the they're badasses. Because they're fucking badasses, and they're not yeah. as weak as men think they are. Exactly. So fuck them for thinking they couldn't do anything. Yeah. Now we're gonna talk about some specific badass ladies. I can't cover all thirty-nine, but that's fair. I picked some of the. Do it. <laughs> we will be here for hours. <laughs> no, I have things to do, you guys. <laughs> But we're going to talk about some of the, the most well-known ones who have, like, the craziest stories. Okay. That I, you know, things that I found the most on. So first, we're going to talk about Virginia Hall, a.k.a. the Limping Lady. Oh. She was born in 1906 and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. And she, she started going to college at Barnard and Radcliffe, but then she finished in Paris and Vienna. So through her studies, she was fluent in French, German, Italian, and a little bit of Russian, too. Get out of here, overachiever. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Get out of here. Making us look bad. Mm-hmm. She applied for the U.S. Foreign Service, but she was rejected because she has a vagina. I was going to say, Aww. because she was unqualified? No. No. Mm -mm. No. No, she's super qualified. She speaks five fucking languages. Get out of here, America. Mm-hmm. But she's got a vagina, so it's not possible. It's a handicap. It is. So instead, she became a clerk at the U.S. Embassy in Warsaw and then at the U.S. Consulate in Smyrna, Turkey. Okay. While she was in Turkey in 1933, she Wait, was... Wait, but um, Turkish isn't one of her languages. I just... 
she was there. I don't know what to tell you. Okay. <laughs> Just seems like a waste of resources. <laughs> Well, she's a woman, so okay. All we right. don't need her to translate. We just need her to take notes as a secretary. Do some filing. Right. Don't want her to break a nail. <laughs> so <laughs> I hate this. Go ahead. While she was in Turkey, she went on a hunting trip with some friends. They and, let her do that? Uh, apparently. Okay. She was kind of like a tomboy. She was raised that way. Right. So, but I mean... You know. I'm not saying she can't. I'm just saying, like... Well, this is what she did in her off time. It wasn't for her job. If, yeah, if it were professionally, they would say no. Oh, okay, this was, okay, this was okay. for funsies. All right. Um, and she was climbing over a fence, and her weapon discharged accidentally, and it shot her in her left foot. Boo! It was, yeah, it got... Self-inflicted to the foot. Yeah. So her oh. foot got so, like, mangled and destroyed from this, from this injury that she had to have a... Like, her left leg was amputated below the knee. And she got a seven pound wooden prosthetic that she named Cuthbert. <laughs> Cuthbert. Cuthbert. I don't know where that name came Why from. Why do you name your prosthetic? I mean, all I would names. Why you. Cuthbert? Well, I would. I would name my prosthetic, but I wouldn't necessarily name it Cuthbert. Well, it had some meaning to her, I guess. Remind me of this story if I ever need a prosthetic. Anything, you guys. Cuthbert. <laughs> She went back to Maryland to recover, and then after she did recover, she applied again for the U.S. Foreign Services, and again was rejected. Because she didn't shoot her vagina. Not because she's a woman this time, because she's an amputee. (laughs) What? (laughs) Because she's a cripple. What the fuck? Yep. Wait, how does that prevent her from, like, doing anything? It doesn't. As you will find out, it prevents nothing. I can understand if it was like, you can't be in the front lines of combat, but like... Yeah, no. It okay. doesn't prevent anything, but okay. I think they're just making I'm excuses. Sorry, what was it for again? What was the position? The U.S. Foreign Service. But like doing what? Well, I think you just apply for the Foreign Service and then they place you later. Oh. Yeah, I don't think... It didn't say specifically what her role would be. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a She barrier. couldn't get past step one, so... Right. Yeah, she well, forgot. she didn't shoot her vagina. If she had done that, then maybe... Maybe that would have helped. <sighs> so instead, she went to Paris and began driving ambulances. With her, with her foot? With yeah. her, okay. She can still drive. <laughs> She's handy capable, man. No, I, I <laughs> am not limiting her. I'm just saying, yeah. like, take that, U.S. Foreign Service. Yeah, like, fuck you. <laughs> okay. So she fled to England when France surrendered to the Nazis. And reportedly, the story goes, she was at a cocktail party in London one night, and she was, like, openly bitching about Hitler to, some, to someone. Okay. As one does, yeah. I mean, on the regular. I mean, it's, I guess it's the equivalent of us bitching about yep. Trump or Putin or someone, you know? I mean, it is an exact analogy. A stranger came up to her and handed her a business card and said, if you're really interested in stopping Hitler, come and see me. And this stranger turned out to be Vera Atkins, who was recruiting women for the special operations executive. I love the name Vera. That's Mm -hmm. so badass. I love it. Paul knew the French countryside. She was fluent in French. And she had, you know, the spunk, the tenacity that Mm -hmm. Atkins was looking for. So she saw something in her and, like, told her, come see me. So she did. And in 1941, she became the first female agent in France. Cool. They gave her a fake name and fake papers, and she went posing as an American newspaper reporter because at this point in time, America was still 
neutral. So they were allowed mm-hmm. to travel, mm-hmm. like move around freely in France without being questioned or, you know, sure. being suspicious. Mm-hmm. So she would radio back information on German troop movements and she recruited resistance spies within France and kind of built a whole resistance network in Lyon. Is that how you say it? L-Y-O-N? Lyon? Sure. Sure. I don't know. I speak Italian. And she even helped some downed British pilots escape by organizing French women to escort them to safety. She would send and receive messages. So the BBC would put coded messages into their broadcasts like for her. Mm. And she would send coded messages back to her quote editor for her newspaper. Oh, sure. And they had all kinds of really like convoluted systems worked out that like she would like so for example if she put a germanium in her window this meant that there was a pickup to be made so the person doing the pickup would like go to a particular brick wall and pry out the correct brick this and like pull out the message deep throat before deep throat <laughs> right or they would like go yeah. to the particular cafe and the bartender like you'd give the code name to the bartender and he would Order put the, a certain drink yeah, yeah, and yeah like it's on the bottom of the drink is a little message or something you know on the bottom of the glass so like all kinds of systems like this you know they didn't have the technology we have today but they were really creative damn again because she was a woman she was never officially in charge of anything but she was but she was absolutely in charge (laughs) she was absolutely she was like not officially in charge but she was like in charge yeah yeah and the gestapo eventually started calling her quote the most dangerous of all the allied spies and they put out wanted posters for the limping lady the limping lady. Oh, I wouldn't want that name though. Yeah. No. Well, it's because of Cuthbert. <laughs> That's my drag name, the limping lady. The limping. You have a drag name already. <laughs> You're right. You're right. I'm never giving up my drag name. Yeah. The posters went out calling her the limping lady, and she fled the country. Mm-hmm. She did so by doing a 50 mile trek through the Pyrenees Mountains with her Cuthbert leg. Hard pass. <laughs> yeah. So when the people say she's, you know handicapped and can't do shit she just trekked 50 miles through the goddamn mountain yeah, i can't do that with my two good legs i know yes, through correct. with her fucking cuthbert she trekked 50 miles to the mountains no thank you so she couldn't go back to france so she signed up instead for the u.s office of strategic services the oss that would later become the cia Ooh, i didn't know that and then in 1944 months before d-day she took a british ship back to france disguised herself as a 60-year-old peasant woman, and she went around the French countryside organizing sabotage missions against the Germans where they would, like, derail freight trains, make these roadblocks, cut telephone wires, blew up, like, four bridges, and killed 150 Nazis and captured an additional, like, 500. So she was helping, like, to to limit their ability to get there for D-Day, you know, to kind of limit their ability to mobilize. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, never officially in charge of anything under the OSS, again, because of her vagina. But she was running the show. But she was definitely in charge. Yeah. Okay. Or at least, you know, high up. After the war, she received the Distinguished Service Cross, which is one of the highest U.S. military awards for bravery in combat. And she's the only woman to receive it in World War II. Nice. And she went on to work for the CIA until she was 60. But they never really knew what to do with her because, again, she's a woman. Alan Dulles, who was the yeah. head of the CIA, said that women were too emotional, too not objective enough, and too uh, and not aggressive enough to be the CIA. And it's like, dude, did you see what this fucking woman did? How can you say that yeah. she's too emotional and not oh, objective enough? My God, to like do a fucking job. 
I hate it. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. like blame her, but like, was she underselling herself on her resume? Like, just how was I don't think she needed to undersell herself to be rejected. No, it was kind of like after the women did all this stuff in World War II, they were just like largely not talked about, largely not known about, and just kind of things went back to the way they were where men were running the show again. Like, we'll use you because we need you, but now that the men are back and able to do their jobs, like, you guys can go back to, you know, making dinner. Like, go fuck yourself. It's like when we briefly had women play baseball while the men were at war, and then when they came back, they were like, okay, thanks, bye. Yeah, exactly. We're just filling in. Mm-hmm. So she's, like, the biggest baddest of them all, I think. But I'll give you a little bit about a few of the others, too. Okay. Odette Sansom. She was born in France, she lived in London, and she fled to the countryside of England after London was bombed. Her husband was off fighting the war, and she was taking care of her three kids. But the war office offered her a job working for the government, but they didn't really tell her like what the details of this job would be. But for some reason, she's like, sure, I'll do it. I don't really know what happened with her kids. They must have gone to some family member or something. She was kind of reluctant <laughs> to leave them, but decided to anyway, to be a badass. For a good cause. For a yeah. good cause. I'm all right with it. She became a courier and she would set up radio networks. She coordinated parachute drops and armed the resistance fighters for D-Day. She was arrested when an agent in her circuit was turned. So like someone ratted her out essentially. Mm -hmm. And she was tortured and then put into the Ravensbrück concentration camp. She was burned and no. beaten and her back was broken and her toenails were pulled out. Ah! Ah! That's the worst. Ugh. I'd rather you break my back. Uh, well, she had both done. Oh, my well, God. I would rather you break it, like, in every... Uh, oh, my God. God. Oh. I hate it. I hate I that hate so it. much. Oh, my God. But she never gave up any information, and later she escaped. Oh. And she went on to testify and help convict Fritz Surin, who was an SS officer, and the Ravensbrucks commandant, as well as other SS officers of war crimes. So... She was a badass till the end. Nice. And Andre Borel, she took a crash course in nursing for the Red Cross when the war started. She joined the French resistance operatives and operated the country's largest underground escape network. So she helped run an underground escape line that helped about like 600 ally agents get home. Nice. She got found out and like her cover was blown. So she escaped to Lisbon, Portugal. Mm -hmm. And then made her way to London. And from London, she joined the SOE. So what she was doing before was just with the French resistance operatives, not SOE. But then she did join SOE, and she was the first female agent to get parachuted into France. She became a courier. She arranged supply drops, recruited and trained new resistance members, and became the second in command of her network in Paris, which is pretty high up for a woman in those times. Sure. Again, they didn't want to like you the the high the you know the top dog, but she became second in command. I mean, that's about as good as you can get at yeah, that yeah. point. She was arrested in June of forty three, and because she was sold out by a double agent, same as the last one, she was interrogated, transferred to Knotswaler Struthoff, nailed it concentration yep. camp <laughs> yep. uh, a year later, and she was executed there a month after D Day. Unfortunately, boo. Aww. Yeah. I'm not sure how to say this. L-I-S-E. Lise de sure. Basique. Lise de Basique. I'm sorry if that's not how you say your name. Sorry. Could it just be like Lise? Lise. L-I-S-E. Lise. I have no idea. It's French. 
She grew up in Mauritius, which is the French-speaking colony off the coast of Africa. Again, nailed it. I don't speak <laughs> French. I'm sorry. <laughs> she was parachuted into France with Burrell, the last woman that I talked about. She set okay. up a bunch of safe houses. She arranged pickups for ammunitions. And she would often bike 60 to 70 kilometers in a day. Nope. To act as a liaison between the different networks and like to transport contraband. Biking all over the fucking place. Like, I can barely get on a uh, bike and, you know, bike 10 miles without injuring yeah, myself. No, thanks. no, thank you. <laughs> 70 kilometers this lady Super no daily. Thank you. Well, you're unique, Steph. I'm a special snowflake. You are that a special snowflake. Said, I also still could not bike that without injuring myself. Yeah. <laughs> 70 kilometers. I don't even know what that is in miles. I, I hate don't it. know. It's, I it's hate too it. many. It's too many miles. Yes. Her network was discovered and she got airlifted back to England, but then she went back in April of 44 and led the resistance in Normandy in 1944 with her brother, Claude, who's also an SOE agent. So the two of them went around cutting power lines, blowing up bridges and roads and train tracks, again, to kind of cut off the Nazis' access to Normandy. Uh, later, she went on to work for the BBC and she received Croix, C-R-O-I-X. Croix? Sure. Croix? Croix de Guerre. Fuck it. Whatever. She received some honors. (laughs) She received two different honors when she was 91, which is like better fucking late than never, I guess. Yeah. Nancy Wake, a.k.a. the White Mouse. Ooh. Ooh, I like that one. She was named such because of her ability to evade capture. I like it. Mm -hmm. I thought it was that she just didn't tan well. I mean, and I are white mice. I'm glad that she was nicknamed for her skills and not for her fair inability to tan, (laughs) her small stature and fair complexion. I mean, yeah. (laughs) She found out a resistance group lost their radio. This is like the badass story about her. There was a resistance group that lost their radio, so she rode a bike 300 kilometers. Nope. To make contact and arrange them to get a new radio. And she had many close calls, but she survived. No, thank you. Jacqueline and Eileen Didi. Didi is Eileen's nickname. Okay. Nearn. They were both sisters. They, bo- they were in the SOE together. They were born in Britain, raised in France, and their mother was French. And they, so they were fluent in French. They applied for the SOE because they both spoke French fluently and they were having trouble finding jobs anywhere else. Apparently, this was just like an option for them. Ja- okay. Jacqueline was a courier. She delivered messages all over the country and helped blew up pylons, railroad tracks, and factories. Dee Dee was a wireless operator. She got arrested by the Gestapo and was tortured. They held her head underwater until they thought she would, until pretty much she thought she would die. And they would pull her out just in time and like trying to get information out of her. So essentially they were like waterboarding her. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. And like the Germans thought, you know, like women are dumb and innocent and whatever. She essentially played dumb. She acted naive. She's like, I didn't realize that I was doing something wrong. Like I didn't realize when this person asked me to send this message to somebody else that this was like, I'm just a woman. Yeah, I, I had no idea. Exactly. Like somebody's handed me this message and was like, can you pass this to so-and-so? And I did it. And I didn't think anything. And of I just it. trust everyone without asking questions. Uh huh. And eventually <laughs> they believed her and they didn't kill her, but they did send her to Ravensbrook and she escaped, but she never really recovered. She kind of ended up in, like a clinic for people with mental disorders. She got electroshock therapy. She never really held a job after that. So she kind of has a sad story that she 
you know, after all of her torture and everything she endured, she was never quite the same. Hmm. Marie Madeleine Forsad. She was recruited in 1940 at the age of 30. So this is not, these two last ones are not SOE. They were French women or they were, you know, part of this, um, what was called the Alliance Resistance Network. So they were not SOE, but they were other badasses that I just wanted to quickly highlight. She was recruited at the age of 30 and she ended up becoming the leader. So she had like, there was a male leader ahead of her and he was arrested in 41. And then she did become the leader of this Alliance Network. There were thousands of spies in this network, and they infiltrated German submarine bases and reported on the U-boat movements, mm-hmm. and she sent out coded messages back to Britain. Her code name was initially POZ55, P-O-Z-55, but it was later changed to Hedgehog. Oh, <laughs> I love it. I love it, too. <laughs> the Hedgehog. Her name specifically did not give away her gender, even to the British officers she was like sending messages to, so they didn't realize they were communicating with a woman. So, like, when they did eventually meet her, they're like, you're not what we expected. (laughs) Yeah. Like, she purposely didn't want them to know she was a woman. Good. But she sent radio messages, which was one of the most dangerous jobs. The Nazis would kind of look for signals being emitted from hotels and houses to track down these radio women. And they started cracking down on the Alliance agents and capturing them in 1943. So many were tortured by someone named Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Lyon. Barbie? Barbie, yeah. B-A-R-B-I-E. Klaus Barbie. And he would burn their breasts with cigarettes, and they would torture these Alliance members, but none of them ever gave up for Saad. And she came back to England after two and a half years, whereas most leaders in her position only lasted like six months before their cover was blown. So she lasted like five times as long. Damn. And then lastly, Jeannie Rousseau. She was recruited when she was only 20 years old. She spoke five languages, and she became a German translator. And she would, again, do kind of like the eyelash batting thing. She would hang around with Nazi officers. And for some reason, they just like told her things. She would like feign interest. <laughs> yeah, she would just like feign interest in like what Men they were doing. Dumb. And they just like to like mansplain to her. Yeah. To like impress her. So like she found out about their new rocket and missile technology. And they just they showed the plans to her. They just like showed her, like, look at what we're doing. And probably like, this bra doesn't understand anything, but she's going to think it's impressive and want to bang me. Essentially, That's yeah. 100%. Because a woman is. couldn't possibly know what a missile is or a rocket. Mm-hmm. And so they, they would show her plans, and she had a photographic memory. Go, girl. Yes. And so she would, you know, so she passed on the information to Forsad, who passed it on to Britain. And they bombed the plant that was making the rockets. Nice. She got captured on her way back to London to debrief. Like, she, they were bringing her back to debrief on what she had accomplished. And, but she got put into a concentration camp, but she did survive. So, go girl. The women did not come back to the same celebrations that the men did. You know, they weren't considered to be soldiers, so they didn't get military honors. They didn't get the same military pensions that the men got, again, because they're not soldiers. And their salaries and ranks were generally lower than all of the men. But they did the same goddamn work. Of course they did. Put themselves in the same fucking danger, but didn't get the same recognition or, you know, benefits from it. Many of them got awards later, though, like like the one who got one at 91 years old, you know, better late than never. Mm -hmm. And some of them got awards later, like after their death, posthumously. So they did get recognized, and now there's multiple books out there. So like, they're a little bit more known than 
they used to be, but I don't, still don't think this is something we learn about. Definitely not. In no. history, no. you know? No. We learn about all the the battles and all the crazy stuff that the men were doing, but like no one hears about these women who are risking their lives to send messages and transport explosives and got tortured and escaped. So yep. women are fucking badasses and should be recognized as such. And they contributed greatly to us winning World War II. The end. Go women. If you also agree that women are badass and deserve recognition for everything, mm-hmm. you can listen to Harpy Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Wherever you listen, please rate us and leave us a glowing review. Glowing. Yes. Nothing but five stars. And if you have stories you think we might like or you just want to say hello because you think we're awesome, you can email us at harpyhourpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at harpyhourpod. We are also on Patreon. If you want to guarantee that we take up that story that you send to us via email, you can become a Patreon member at the Master of Orgasms level and you can tell which harpy you want to tell which story. We also have stickers and AMAs where you can ask us questions and we answer them as ridiculously anything, as possible. Anything. Almost anything. Asterisk almost. <laughs> Unless you're Craig. <laughs> Continue. So head on over to Patreon. Check out all the cool stuff we got going on. The extra content. The goofs and tangents reels. And uh, please consider donating to us to keep us on the air. So thanks for listening. Okay, okay bye. Bye. bye.